Hey everyone, welcome back to the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I chat with people who are keeping Singaporean food heritage alive in their own way. I hope all of you are having a great start to your year so far, and who better to speak to on the subject than KF Sito from Makan Sutra. The man needs no introduction, I remember watching him as a child on TV, introducing hawker food and having late night seafood dinners with Anthony Bourdain, and I love that he was unabashedly Singaporean. He ate in such a visceral manner, you could tell that he was really enjoying the food, and it felt very real to me because Singaporean food was never a white tablecloth kind of cuisine, and I love that Sito really championed that part of our culture. So here's my chat with him, and I hope that you enjoy it. How are you? Good, how are you? How was your breakfast? Uh, I had a very nice uh, a prawn noodle. And uh, it was special because she told me she's using these new prawns. And uh, yeah, they are frozen. We don't really get fresh stuff, but it was particularly good. You know, prawns, we love that crunch, right? It's a very nice prawn. So, you know, finding out more about supplies, where they all come from. It's very important also because uh, the world is going to change. People no longer want to supply to Singapore anymore. So this morning, your breakfast was your job? It was what? Almost every meal is a job. <laughs> talk to the hawkers. I get a new interesting fact. So everyone knows who you are. You're like a household name in Singapore. But I don't think anyone really knows about you or how you started Makan Sutra. So can you tell me a little bit about what led you on this path to become such a strong proponent of local food? So, where shall I start? Huh? I mean, everybody loves food, huh? no, no big deal. And I grew up in an era where Singapore was growing, you know, everything was industry and all that. And, uh, and I, love, I eat a lot uh, out um, when I was a photojournalist for the Straits Times before the SPH days. Huh? It, was, it was really a private organization. And, uh, you know, I, I hear so much from my writers and all that about food, food, hey, where are you? Hey, you buy this, buy that. And I was curious, why are they so precise in wanting to eat this? And then my colleagues would take me out at night and we go out you know, on my little Vespa and, and, and I realized it is really nice, you know, to go and eat something like go here specifically for this, go there for that. This is nice. And, uh, and I thought, Hey, what about this? Why, why aren't we celebrating this? Why aren't we telling more? And then I, I read about all these uh, food guides, uh, uh, Go and Mayo, uh, of course your Michelins and your, and your food guides around the world, and 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 uh, and why people are talking so much about Thai food or even Japanese food, which largely are uh, heritage or even street food. And I said, hey, we have something here also. So it was then I realized something. There was something right about our. Our, uh, our street food, our hawker stall, and, and even the people behind it. I mean, they are one dish entrepreneurs. One dish. They buy a house, they raise a family, they send their kids to university. It's very common. I'm sure you know corporate readers who have parents that are hawkers. There are ministers down here who have parents that are hawkers, you know. So something was right about it. And, and, and when you sell food in Singapore, they no longer look down on you. Because you're offering something comforting to them at an affordable price. I mean, it's nothing, it's not fancy stuff. Huh? It's comforting heritage food and, and you can feel good about it. So we've come a long way since uh, street food was itinerant in Singapore. So, so I said, I would like to do something about it when I, when I decided to quit 
um, the Straits Times. <coughs> um, so I, you know, I went into commercial photography for a while, and you know, it, it's too commercial. Like, you know, it's like, you know, photography. Yeah, I love photography, but after a while, it's like, you know, I won't wake up today if nobody was offering me four thousand bucks. I won't wake up for less than that kind of money a day. And I said, uh, after a while, when when digital photography came about, and I said, this is the end of the kind of traditional photography which I am, and uh, which I'm particularly good at. I know one day butchers will become photographers on their day off, you know, because of digital photography. And I said, no, I gotta switch. I'm who am I? I'm a storyteller. Um, not just a photographer. I can put some words together and tell you a story. Because one of the best stories to tell. And I realized, let's start a food game. You know, so I started Markan Sutra in 1998. Uh, 97, 97 was when I formed the company, 98 was when we published our first book. And uh, if I had this A to Z black book that I still have, you know, with, with, with the little pink uh, tongues at the side, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And I, I uh, learned all this. I went out to see people, stalk people. That's how you get. This was pre-Google days. That's how we got facts. If your readers or your viewers want to know how we get it, facts, you really went out there to speak to the hawkers in dialect if you must. And I'm good. Like, I know some dialects and I can wing it. Like. Mm. And I, I learned so much. Oh my God, I didn't know. And and, and used to be a hawker center is where they sell food. Now I can walk into a hawker that's haka. This one is da 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 nice. That's a that's a, a Hainanese style. That's this. No, I and and that tells me so much more about my country. What uh, who we are. So she's from a after a food guide, and I said, hey, and I did my TV shows and all that started exploding, and we went. Uh, um, um, we went to do food courts and then uh, one fine day Bourdain called me la. I don't even know who the hell he is he just wanted me on his show and we became very good friends after that even uh, folks from New York Times they all heard about what I do and, I, and whenever they came I always told them a little bit beyond it's be the beyond deliciousness experience I give them the book was selling like 9,000 copies for the first edition and uh, I was like, why so little? And I didn't know in Singapore they'll give you a, a, a platinum award if you sell 5,000. And I was selling 9,000. I was complaining, what the hell? Clinton sold a million copies. And here I made 9,000. So, so by the second, third book, um, they were clamoring for it. And, uh, we used to give borders at Kino Kunia, all these big bookshops, uh, about mm. maybe 500 books. Um, a month to sell. This is damn good, right? They yeah. call back within a week. They oh call back, they call my distributor a week. Can you don't give me 500? Can you put 4,000 books here? Oh. So I don't have to keep calling you. Yeah. yeah, it was like beyond and beyond. I was like, what the hell happened? We couldn't because you re-ink the thing and then, you know, so, so yeah. uh, after a while, they was doing very good and then after online came about and the book started to fade off. So we went into, and, and I decided to do things like, uh, hey, you know, all this book thing, it, it doesn't really address what I truly want to address, which is true continuity in not just Singapore street food culture, but the world street food culture. Who's preserving, who's protecting it? Who is the UNESCO for uh, hawker street food culture around the world? Mm. So I sat down and said, I'm going to create the World Street Food Congress. Yeah. I want to get all the people around the world who owe me favors uh, to come to my event 
uh, including Bourdain, of course. Yeah. And we're gonna I'm gonna invite uh, um, hawkers, top hawkers from around the world, literally from Mexico, from China, India. They are real ones. They're not Singaporeans selling Mexican food. The fellas that came here, they don't speak English. That you know, we flew them in out of my own money. They have me. Yeah. Got a little bit of sponsorship because you don't know what the event was. Bourdain came in a heartbeat. I said, I said, Tony, you need to come to my event. I need to fund this. And of course, wow, the world media came and then Tony gave some very nice quotes uh, that, that powered the event. He said things like, uh, you don't need a restaurant to be a, a, a culinary superstar. You just need four wheels you now and a car. That's it. They're a rock star. Yeah. So, so he said, never underestimate the power of uh, the one dish entrepreneur, however humble they are, because they are integral who you are yeah you know you said that you you know it was the book was really popular and it sold nine thousand copies um what do you think was the main draw for people i mean you know singaporeans are known for being very very kiamsiap right they find it very hard to part with their money so why would you pay time for a book there was a hawker guide there was there was no hawker guides then Uh, even a tv they don't really feature there's only one segment in a chinese show that made fun of some hawkers because they were a comical trio and all that. Um, but a proper food that came out and we told stories about them in a in a in a in a respectful way. You know, we don't say, ah yeah, this one uh, can do no good, you know. Like like this book that I was inspired by, it was by Margaret Chan, who was a food writer in the Straits Times and who was who was a peer of Violet Oon. Violet Oon was very popular and she hit the streets you know? She did this book called First Stops. Uh, it was in 1991, way before me. And I had a, I had an old photo set copy of it. I flipped through. And the way she wrote, yeah, man, this is where I want to go. She talked about Ujaga, the, the Sikh Kabak fellow on the second floor next to Chinatown. She, she described, I could, I, could, I could sense what she was saying. Although she had a little quirky ways of uh, rating the uh, this one can do it's not okay la, you know the, the kind of rating so so i thought maybe we should go deeper into it tell a little bit story she, she went place by place it's meant to be re- uh, read by somebody who knew about food who knew what who can tell the difference between bachomi and fishbowl noodles so i said you know no i think uh, because of tourism there are a lot of people who don't know even singaporeans who don't know who don't eat beyond what they eat downstairs and at work every day so um, they went, uh, I, 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 I dredged a hundred over types of food from Angu Kwe to Yuja Kwe. And, and as best as I could describe in just sort of what they are. So some people they don't know, or some people are fresh, they will, oh, okay, I have a good idea. Yeah, that's, that, that's a South Chinese one. This is a Singapore uh, fusion that already happened, you know, 60, 70 years ago, and all that, we talk about that. So this story was building up. And then um, after the event, of course, my, my TV show went on and on and on, but um, I, I felt like I should be doing something to really put world heritage food or street food culture on a pedestal. So eight years ago, in my regular new paper column, I wrote a piece about we should, uh, ins- we should uh, make an inscription um, for UNESCO to nominate our Singapore Yishan for mm. UNESCO award in tangible food culture because I mean French fry can eh, Yishan also can everybody eats Yishan. Mm. You don't care what color your angmo also eat. 
And this is something that is organic across the board. Their stories is not powered by the government, you know, as yeah. many things are in Singapore. It's changed from the ground. And of course, I wrote that piece. Oh, my editors are so excited. And of course, we got some response from the Malaysian minister. Mm. He said, oh, no, oh, it's ours. Oh, how can you, tiny little Singapore, claim that? Yeah. So to which I said, okay, here's our story. The Four Heavenly Kings in 1950 mm. when they were kids. After dinner, they drive it down together. They talk about up, upgrading the classic Shunta uh, Yishun. Yeah. Uh, I said, no, this one in Singapore must have a story. Each of the colorful ginger around it must mean something. Each color must mean something. And then we have a plum sauce and then all every and then we have fish and all that. And then to eat, you must toss it low. That's my story. And I even did a video on YouTube to interview them, the last three remaining, or two or three remaining of the heavenly kings. And I said, so Malaysia, what's your story? Yeah. So, so can boy, no story, right? <laughs> then after a few years later, anyhow, say, uh, oh, in 1923, this old black and white family photo, all oh, that man down there, he ran this, you know, he sold it. I said, yeah, recent existed way, way before. That guy is probably from China. Yeah, that's it. But I'm talking about prosperity, Yishan. Give me your story. Let me know story. Anyway, two years ago, I was invited to the National Heritage Board for a focus group. And uh, they, they said, you know, among, they invited a foodie section and they got arts and music and culture groups to do focus group on what should the next UNESCO viable thing we should have in Singapore after Botanic Gardens. So I said, uh, so among people, they brought up other things, you know, Violet brought up about Peranakan culture and all that. So I just said, hawker food culture, you know, and it was like, and you could see that there was certain kind of just, just like, ooh, you know, really? resistance and disdain, you know. I, I could sense it. I could sense it. So I, I, I said, okay, let me ram this down at you. I said, I, I talk about how it's organic, how everybody, I said, come on, if you just have hawker food, you know, and then he, oh, yeah, well, I said, call up the UNESCO criteria uh, page, yeah, and tick off. Mary, check it, check it off with our hawker food culture. I didn't say hawker food, I said culture, underline the last word, culture. And we went down the, the checklist and it checked out perfectly. Mm. Four to five months later, um, uh, Prime Minister Lee Sien Lung called for the official nomination of it. Like, I mean, they went to a six-month campaign where we did all these uh, shows and all that stuff. And, and uh, in March of 2019, they made the official uh, submissions to UNESCO yeah. and by yeah, last week we got it to get international recognition yeah. that is the, the social uh, goal the commercial goal was hey now we can properly tell and sell our food culture overseas around the world Singapore is very pathetic and eh? no Singapore restaurants around the world eh? what I want to do is now these hawkers they themselves, an individual hawker, um, should be looking overseas, should be partnering people. People will now come and say, oh wow, it's not just about what and where to eat. Eh? It's about your story. Eh? Wow, you are, wow, you got generations here. This is iconic. Can I partner you to set up? Mm -hmm. We need a street food hawker, hawker street food academy. 
where you go there and learn not just about cooking and the kitchen setup and your accounts in and out daily and supplies. You learn about business models, licensing, franchising, and where do you grow? Where do you set up? Who are the people and organizations around the world that can set you up? So a lot of hawkers, you know, Hawker Chan, the fellow does that thing, and you know, this guy comes along, okay, I do this. I don't even want your name. You know, let's change the Hawker Chan. So, so the guy is like creating a new brand, but using his uh, life fund, don't know what old name, right? So, so this guy has grow his own name. So I think that's a wrong model. The hawkers should do a McDonald's franchise. The, the, the franchise model should be so thick for a hawker. Then people say, oh wow, don't believe me. The licensing, franchise, partnership, whatever. Yeah. You know, this, there should, I think there are lawyers, fully lawyers out there who will be very happy to give you basic templates. Yeah. And, uh, I'll, I'll get some and I'll put it out there. Let hawkers know what are the because hawkers can only go know how to go there and cook at 3 a.m., sell you by 7 a.m. or 8 a.m., mm. but they don't know how to explain. Like, yeah, I, I cannot go there, I've got to be here. Like, how to go there? So then I said, how the, how the hell are McDonald's have so many thousand hours around the world? Yeah, you know, and they're fairly consistent. So, this kind of things has to be taught in a hawker street food academy, mm. uh, which is unfortunately isn't. Um, isn't available right now. They have a NEA hawker course that actually teaches people to set up more hawker stalls in their hawker centers, the government hawker centers, not even kopitiams or food courts. So the one is not 360, not you know, um, not you, UNESCO, UNESCO world class, you know. Yeah. You should do that because and then UNESCO will say, "Wow, you guys are serious, man." Come like this. So mm. I don't know. I hope somebody picks it up. I think my issue is that hawker food is all about soul, you know? When you expand something and whenever you do a franchise model, I think you lose part of that because how are you going to QC? You know, how are you going to pass on the craft to so many people, skills that you took years to master? You know, I, I don't think I can ever think of a good franchise business that still retains its soul. No, okay, from a purist point of view, because we're so pure about our food, yeah, we, we are saying things like the way you do. Now, look, um, the, pe- um, the people that, oh, okay, let me put another model. Um, okay, Jean George Wongdu, who's got like 31 restaurants. Three Michelin stars got sold. Now. What about uh, Thomas Keller? All these so called, you know? And uh, um, so it's not that. Um, the soul is an art of finishing a dish, right? Chakwetyao. The guy goes there, he watches the fire, he do that. One, let's say I pluck this idea. I can teach you how to finish. How your spatula, you cannot cannot cut the noodle, you only shovel and keep tossing your noodle. You know, you you must must, uh, um, push it to the side. Um, When you know it's done, then you drop the egg in and then after you fold the noodles over and the noodles and all that. I can teach you that. I can teach you that. What I won't teach you is my sauce. You have to buy that from me. Yeah? And the sauce I can replicate quite accurately and send it around the world. So I, I can uh, impart as much as I can until that basic part where I protect my IP. I think it's easy to share a recipe. But I think it's harder to, for example, teach a young hawker how to have wok hay 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, um, it's so impossible. It will take time. And how the people teach is an art in its own. A lot of hawkers can't teach because they don't know how to teach. The idea of teaching, so I think to structure this course, somebody has to come and digest uh, um, nuggets and of information about the art of cooking. Mm. Walk hey, it's so easy to say. We, you know, everybody who has a who has a Instagram site can say or walk hey. What is it really? Mm. You know, I can go further and say it's art of introducing fire as a flavor, or, or so far enough. But that's still very lofty. The yeah. guy will know, hey, what kind of walk to use that? Uh? What kind of fire? Jet fire, six ring fire, that kind of thing. Um, so this kind of thing is not properly explained. Even the hawkers that are good themselves don't know because they wrote, learn from their masters. Mm. Capture yeah. this. They can be taught. It will take time. Um, um, and a proper business model can be implemented. So what you're talking about is documentation as well of these techniques and not just recipes. Yeah, yeah scientific. I mean, not scientific, like proper um, diligence, like diligent and uh, uh, diligent um, uh, what, a recording uh, of all these yeah. kinds of things and uh, information and translate it to a teachable format. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about that. And, and I think that's something that I feel very strongly about when I do Singapore noodles because our cuisine is very aga-aga, right? You know, how do you translate something that is so intangible and so, you know, visual to something that is very clearly documented? Um, it can be done. Look, look, the, the hawkers today, the slightly older hawkers, are already second and third generation from their forefathers. They got it, right? Mm. So it can be done. They learned it from their forefathers through spending time with them at the stove. Versus, you know, now what we are proposing is having it be documented and someone learning it from a manual instead. No, no, no. The, the, the hawkers, maybe their job right now, they have a different role now. They are, they are invigilators. They travel around to check. <laughs> like a creative, wow. like a creative principal, principal chef. They yeah. go around and check. And people appreciate that. They co-own so many stores. Their job to then fly there to check and upgrade and move yeah. about. That makes Which sense. Which hawker don't want to travel in? You know, speaking, speaking about business models, you know, you've mentioned one dish entrepreneur previously. Do you think this is something that the, that the younger generation would, would be still into? Like producing yeah. cooking one look, dish for the rest of their life? I mean, look, um, one of the biggest one dish entrepreneurs in the world are running the biggest companies in the world, biggest food companies in the world, KFC. Lah. McDonald's basically cheeseburger. Everything else on the menu is nonsense, right? It's upsell, right? Yeah? You, you, I sell you nasi biryani. I say, hey, you want extra proper dab? You want extra acha? You want fish? All these are nonsense. But the main thing is there. So don't, 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 one dish entrepreneurs, even your pizza chains, your burger chains, your fried chicken, all these are one dish entrepreneurs. Yakun. Kayatos. Now you go there, they have your mirobusa, they give you misyama, they give you all kinds of stuff. All these little bells and whistles to upsell you. Yeah, which is right, but stay, but but always remember your core is always what you were known as. Like as much as I admire the hawkers, I know that I can never do what they do because 
I can never spend my whole life perfecting one dish. I would feel so bored. And I'm not sure if that is the way that we should encourage them. Because our forefathers did it that way because they had no choice. They had to make a living for themselves. And that was the best way they knew how to. So that, in the past, it was about survival. Mm. Today, it's about calling. Yes. Um, some people just, I mean, I'll tell you what, some hawkers feel so good. Why are they willing to wake up 2 a.m. every day to do that? You know, they say, they say no, I do the same thing every day. Maybe I improve as I learn something from people. Every day, people line up. They give me money. I mean, to pleasure them. I'm not talking, um, you know, same things as what the hooker would say, but they are selling food and other sin. So, so, um, and he said, yeah, same thing. I go through the thing. I uh, get my money and I get on with life. I take uh, my, my day offs and all that. Um, I have a life and I get friends. And you know what the ecosystem is? The hawker center, the food center. They make friends there. On the day off, they go back there. And it's, their, it's their club, you know. Mm-hmm. You have your own clubs in life, you know. Your yeah. own social life it is and they feel good they learn so many things they learn about the, the neighbors family and all that yeah so it's a social ecosystem we 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 don't look into easy to say well every day like that but jerry my hawkers that go back to the hawker stores on their day off you know they love it this is my life yeah for sure but i'm what i, I think what i'm saying is that Maybe because the hawker center stalls are so small, they don't have space to cook so many different dishes or to have so many different kinds of ingredients at the same small space. That's why they only specialize in one dish. But if they were to expand, I think surely they can have more offerings in their, in their stall. It'll, it'll change a little bit. You know, that, that soul will change a little bit. You know, when... when Hawker Chan moved to Melbourne, instead of serving just one or two dishes like he does in Hawker Centre, in, in Chinatown Hawker Centre, he actually does an, a full array of different dishes. Like, I think there are more than 10 to 15 items on his menu. So I think as a Singaporean going to his stall here in Melbourne, it does feel a bit different. I feel cheated, right? Not, not I, so cheated, that's where... It's more like resigned. It's diluted, it's diluted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, so that's where you, you got to come in very clear about what you want to do. Do you want to sell chicken rice and then offer Hainanese pork chop and then all that? Do you want to do that? You know, you have to be able, you have to know that you're going to a dimension where you are not uh, experienced in. Uh, so you look at a lot of people around the world. Now they are, I mean, look at the Japanese izakayas. A small little place that like give you plates and plates of this. Look at the way they operate. Very precise, you know. Mm. You don't need a big space to sell a lot of stuff. And if you are talking about can can they sell a lot in a you know ten by twelve? Well, uh, look 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 under zhicha in my in my food guide. And then you look at uh, top ten Chinese zhicha and wohak. They have seventy seven items in their menu. You know? mm. In that one China in that one Hong Lim Hawker Center store. So you tell me you cannot cook a lot. It's not because it cannot be people not desirous enough to want to be that good. 
let's talk a little bit about the UNESCO listing because I mean UNESCO is something mm. that you've brought up quite a lot but honestly do you feel like it makes a big difference to hawker culture? If we leverage on what this uh, award means uh, if we just sit back and clap or oh, now oh, now no, like I said uh, I've been saying again their lines are not going out the door just because we have a UNESCO um, but for when the doors open the borders open and there's still this shout out about them by the authorities or even the tourism board anything will change people those who usually didn't know much about it or used to shun it will now go back to the hawker center again and eat with a third eye so they no longer ask about spicy or not they says wow this story is fantastic wow now i understand i'm eating here i woke up for breakfast this guy has been cooking since 2 a.m these are the GIT hawkers, just the time hawkers. Uh, you know, I mean, you go to a Michelin star restaurant, they open at 11, people come in at 8, you know, 3, 4 hours before. The hawkers come in 6, 7 hours before they open, yeah. you know. The curry noodle at Hong Lim, uh, uh, shutters, uh, uh, lift their shutters at 3 a.m. And the first dish, and the first bowl they dish out is 7 a.m. At 10 a.m. And I, I spent time, I watched them step by step what they do. It's jaw-dropping, you know. And they sell you $4. Yeah. But do you feel like Singaporeans really don't know how much work goes into being a hawker? Or I, I feel that Singaporeans do they don't know. They know. Yeah, they know. I mean, this yeah. narrative has gone on for so many years. And I feel yeah. that Singaporeans love and are so proud of our hawker food. But whether we're willing to pay more, that's a different story. Okay, I, I, uh, they don't know. I mean, they, they can pay lip service to how hard they work, but they didn't get their toes wet before. Uh, it's no joke. No. As you go and devein 10 kilos of uh, prawns, you know, the shell, devein, and then after half the prawn, like our old school uh, Hokkien me, they have it, like what I had this morning. Because then I saw you know, devein. There's a lot of work, you know, this is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, if you're asking about if this is a setback for, for, People entering the line, yes, it is. There's not enough information about uh, how wonderful it is to be a hawker. Um, you are very hard work. My mother, my mother, oh, 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 I don't want to be. Even the hawkers sometimes tell their kids, don't be a hawker, go be some, go sit in an office. So, but now it's beginning to change. I mean, if, if suddenly they see a flood of hawkers partnering with international street food players and food court, systems and manage, um, uh, management corporations and all that opening around the world and they have developed a very nice uh, partnership licensing model that can deliver i wouldn't say 100 percent 80 percent also very good in India. Mm. the world will change everybody will know it will change and then says hey look this guy is raking in you know 1.5 million a year just you know oh suddenly the noise will change because right now it's very fragile. Um, mm. If you ask me about the new hawkers, I mean, they come in, they sell the same old thing. Uh, Fishbone, noodle, uh, and they sell time, yeah, one dish, one dish. You know who's dying already? It's gone to the factories, it's gone to the machines. You find very few people with two walks in the kitchen dishing out 20 dishes every day. Mm. Nowadays, most of the chapchaipong, a call, the factory will send to you. Uh, you just go there and toss it in a wok, make it look like you're cooking it. Take out a box, throw yeah. it inside, shoot it, put it out there. So 
it doesn't grow, it doesn't evolve. You you cannot say, hey, I'm gonna do a hakka zicha, hakka chai peng store. Chai peng is chai peng. So uh so like I said, a lot of dishes are dying. Um you look at some of the old, some of the other dishes, even a zicha, any new generation come and do zicha. Not here, not three, not four. Because the Tuta masters are, are you know, rock stars, you know, they rock it. They can do a dish, you know, one chef, 20 tables, no problem. Cha, 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 cha. You tell it to a young fellow, how can? No, I cannot. Well, no, la, no, la. I think you're So, we, as far as I say, we really need an academy. The other problem is manpower. If you're going to set up today as a, uh, some young, uh, uh, inspired, uh, street food hawker unesco class hawker you want to set something up like that yeah bravo yeah even you got money eh? so uh after you set up i'm going to ask you who is going to work for you <clears throat> who's going to come and open up boil cut clean wash hmm. and collect uh we have a manpower problem yeah you you want to you want to do that you have to do everything yourself maybe you have a partner going to slog it with you but you're going to hire help even you pay decent you pay university graduate for uh um monies for an assistant nobody's gonna work for you during covid i think there was close to twenty thousand. i think phase one and phase two uh, early phase two there was about twenty thousand, close to twenty thousand F and b jobs that the government happily touted oh we have twenty thousand F and b jobs go to the job bank and then later somebody wrote a piece uh, somebody asked what is the take up rate during those desperate jobless and 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 cloudy gray era of covid what was the take up rate five percent and 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 like they said oh they pay good price they pay more than minimum thousand five thousand eight and all that you know so i said lisa i know people who are paying two over thousand dollars still no takers so more so than ever it was it is Evidently clear, Singaporeans don't want F&B jobs. Mm. They just want to eat. They do not know about the potentials of this because it's so great. The other one is um, if you have passion, uh, you want to set up and all that. Like I said, um, nobody's going to work for you. you know? mm. How are you going to grow? After three months, your, your knees will wobble. You know? yeah. And you will start hunching and your health will go down because you are constantly in the kitchen doing everything. True. You, are, you are breathing in detergent to use the oil you know, every day. Um, so the real motto, tagline is passion made impossible because <laughs> of the manpower problem. And you talk about hawker stalls. Uh, so the government hawker stalls, oh, that's where you get affordable food. You know, bordering on cheap. You can you're so proud to tell everybody. Yeah, come here, it's cheap, you know, $3 you get makan. But at the same time, when you bid for a store, they take the highest bid. Yeah. And they expect you to sell cheap. So if you look at a, so if you bid for a store, say, I just met somebody out in Durung, his store cost him $3,000. He's selling, you know what, noodles now, I was talking to him yesterday. $3,000 for 10 by 10 square foot so 100 square foot uh, is 30 dollars per square foot that's more expensive than anything in orchard road and the government's a hey, you have to sell a three dollar item uh. so 
you tell them till the cows come home, you got to rethink your your policy on bidding. You know, it it, it does it fall on deaf ears. So what does the UNESCO listing really do? I mean, there are so many deep-seated systemic problems that run through hawker culture. The UNESCO will come back every six months to check, what did you do to improve this? And, 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 and we'll let you know if your award still stands. So these are the little things you should do. So I feel if it's a government running hawker centres, you're probably cheap food. You should stay away. You should relook the highest bidder thing. Although they will tell you, oh, but you know, there are people who bid for $50 stalls. That's a reply, you know. Yeah, I say, hello, $50 stalls in a place nobody goes to, you know. It's like selling Muslim food in Chinatown. Mm. You know, you won't get a lot. Uh, or, and then at the same time, there are people who bid $8,300 just a couple of months ago for a stall in, uh, in Chinatown Complex, or uh, OG, uh, People's Park Complex Hopper Center, eight thousand three hundred dollars that's eighty dollars per square foot same price or even more expensive than mbs hmm. so i said so what's your what's your you, on the one hand you say fifty dollars and then you keep quiet about the eighty dollars what what is your policy what is your gambit what is the government's role on this to, hmm. to profit here because they're already using public monies to build and run yeah. the place why are you still want to collect some money from the people who are trying to offer uh, affordable fee for the masses, and even now when you bid for a stall, they they interview you, you know, with the right who you are, why you want to sell, and all that. I say, can't you just give a good rent and pick the best one? This one's a very good story, very good dish. I'm going to try. Pop, oh, good. It. So they're curating, they're giving uh, um, uh, diversity in the hawker stall. Yeah. Instead, so they go by the highest bid. So you spoke a lot about the government's role. What about the role of Singaporeans, the public? Singaporeans already made the made this um, culture so UNESCO-able. UNESCO um, you continue eating and they support. And if you tell a new generation support the hawkers, like you saw during the COVID, they do. Um, just that I think more stories need to be told. Need to be told. Instead of where to eat, what's so good about this, another block, another vlog, and all that, um, the appreciation for food is already there. Now we should heighten the appreciation of food culture. I mean, you ask kids today, they eat uh, lor mee or they eat mee um, goreng. To them, it's noodle dishes. But if you tell them lor mee has got your grandmother's roots from, from uh, Putin, and then mee goreng is actually doesn't exist in India. <laughs> it is a dish that Indians here uh, adapted from the Chinese. And then they, they feel so good about it. When I go there, I look at the dish, well, I say, hey, look, look, hi, nam, nam. And then they say, you say, yeah, you know, you're selling a Hainanese dish. You know, I understand. So that's one level of appreciation of this food culture. And then the other level, the other level is, what did they do? What did, what did they put themselves through every day just to be ready to sell this dish for 10 years. And they appreciate, wow, it is not easy. Nah. And I really appreciate that you are able to sell me $3, $4 in the world's most expensive city. Mm. Uh, so culture, techniques, and um, you know, even understanding hawkers' relationship with their fellow hawkers. 
how they help each other. It's very interesting now. So, so, so you know that this is a whole ecosystem that's beyond deliciousness that I now so much more appreciate. So that aspect is very, not very well told. If you look at a lot of the, the, the you know, the blocks in Singapore, all the sauce cling on to the noodle, you know. But they didn't tell you that the guy lost his arm in, uh, in some accident last night. Mm. And then, um, um, and before they used to run a, a meatball noodle with a wife who was the main chef, and the wife uh, passed on, and then with just one arm, he took over the store. You know, the kind of stuff. And yeah. so because, and, and the guy gets a cue every day, that guy is very firm, very steady. One arm, he presses 1,500 meatballs every day from 3 a.m. He does that. And then you ask him why, he's all, I know how to do, and I'm happy doing it. I get people that comes out every day, you know, it's, mm. it's a bling bling, and you know what I want really. I just, just do a little sign, I know my regulars. It's that kind of relationship mm. that people have. Uh, so all these are aspects of the culture which nobody really tells. Uh, of course, I tell them, uh, but it gets lost in the noise of hotia uh, bohotia blocks. No lah, I mean, I think if you don't look at blogs, if you look at YouTube channels, there are actually some channels that are, that are doing exactly what you're talking about. Like our grandfather's story, have you heard of them? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they're actually sharing... A lot more stories to be told there. Mm. Yeah, a lot more stories. I mean, they're usually chen or yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. But uh, they're way more exciting. There are no grandfather stories, but they are... There are, you know, husband and wife story, father and children stories, yeah, yeah. or even the guy who gave up his John Hopkins and his uh, MIT master degree. He went sell progressive Indian food in Maxwell. Mm. That's not a grandfather story. That is determination and following your heartbeat. You know? and, 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 and the father paid off his bond, you know. The father paid his rent. Not only the father paid off his bond, went to help him out at the hawker store. What I mean by our grandfather's story is that that is the channel name. But they do very much. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. Uh, um, um, uh, we, should be all, we should all have more knowledge about this grandfather's story. Um, and I've seen, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen <laughs> the channel. I know what you mean, I know what you mean. But, but it's very didactic, yeah, the way they produce it. What do you mean? It's very, let me tell you a story, sit down once upon a time, blah, blah, oh, blah, blah. blah. And then it goes slow more. No, I'm the ones sure I saw are like that. No, la, I'm pretty sure the you're watching I the wrong thing. Like I'll send you the link, okay? After this, after this chat. <laughs> okay, good. good, good yeah, good, good, good. but you know, I've spoken to some hawkers like Melvin Chu, whom I know that you're good friends with, and he told me that a lot of people see the food that he cooks as uncle food. And you know, recently I spoke to another young person and she told me that a lot of people in her class, when they think about Sun Kueh, they think of it as like boomer food. So do you think that there is this stereotype? Of, yeah, I know. Oh, you're so <laughs> yeah, yeah but, I'm a boomer, so what? I can call you a punk, right? <laughs> But do you feel there has been some stereotypes when it comes to local traditional food that is somewhat unhip, uncool, 
so old school, you know, do you feel that certain foods in Singapore carry that baggage? I mean, they are so Instagram, right? The food got to be hip, got to be trendy, got to be creative, got to be, hey, food is either nice or not nice. Divided by cheap or no cheap. And further divided by heritage. You know, if you start implementing things like, uh, it's not very trendy, it's old-fashioned. Old and then, they are contributing to the death of this great yeah. culture we have. They are. Yeah. And, then, and to them, it's like, you shouldn't be eating it. Because it doesn't exist on Instagram. If the youngsters say, yeah, I follow my own heartbeat. I don't, I, you know, I am me. What are you doing? You are just, you are just fingering the latest things to eat. Yeah, but I mean, that is the reality when it comes to young people's perception of, of local food. So is there anything that we can do? I mean, do you feel like hawker food has to be rebranded? Do you feel like it has to evolve? Oh, don't change. Don't change. change the young people. Don't change your hawker food. Otherwise, all hawker food will become Instagrammable. Chakui Teo is the most not Instagrammable food in the world. Ugly the best food we ever got was from Bourdain. How can something so ugly be so good? That's mm -hmm. Bourdain. You know, it's like, yeah, spot on. So, um, the beautiful thing is, uh, young people will grow older. Then they'll realize, hey, yeah, man, that's it. You know? Then those, those hipster food they're eating today will be called boomer, you know, when, when they are, their children grow up, you know? Yeah. So, what, you know, it's like, it's like music. Ew, I don't listen to, to Madonna. She's so, ew, yeah. when, when all the, when all the, when all the uh, 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 strawberry generation singers are redoing their songs, you know, when Adele, Adele goes, um, uh, um, what a, uh, to make you feel my love. Oh, so nice. She they forgot it was sung by Bob Dylan in the 60s. <laughs> That's true. That's so it's true. Just like, uh, um, um, it's just like uh, Melvin. He first called me, I don't know, six, seven years ago. He said, you know, he told me, you know, he's struggling. His father passed away and all that. Um, his father is a main uh, person in the store. Mother helps out. Uh, sister just serves, brother has his own job and he just helps. So he says, hey, brother, I don't know if I continue, you know. Um, not very business, not very busy. was selling pathetic, I mean, you know. And so, so you know, he keep bugging me to go. So one day I went out, look at his store. I said, your store is there. Your store looks pathetic. Why? It's like a pushcart store, uh, fit, fitted into a hawker store. Bags hanging around, sauce covering this, and then you know it just doesn't look nice, you know. And I look at it, look at it, stuff. Okay, lah, you 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 serve reasonably good, uh, braised duck and all that. So I said, you need to clean your act up, make your story clearer. What do you sell? Because the mother said, la, the regulars will come. So to to I told Melvin to tell her. Yeah, the, your old regulars will die already. The doctor will tell them braised duck, chakwe chak, you cannot eat braised duck anymore. And the new, new ones are not coming. You know, uh, this is called the chiu, the chi, sing the pulai. You're stuck. So I look at him and, and I, okay, it, it's good. I mean, they put all effort to put that dish up. Then they serve with a classic platter. And I said, um, what? Because five years ago, six years ago, what Instagram was hot. Everybody wanted to take pictures before you eat. So I said, why don't you represent your kwechap bento stuff? 
So even Daiso, you buy the two dollar thing, you saw the picture, right? Yeah, yeah. I told him you got seven items. Taste it. So just pinch it. Place, 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 place. And then you put two balls of uh, um, yam rice with a slice of daikon in the middle and all that. And that became the most photographed plate uh, uh, And you know what? He told me, you know who are eating it? The young people. Mm, that's great. So it's not about whether it's boomer food or not. It's how you tell your story. And people eat this young people say, even our foreign friends go there, they love it. Mm. Uh, so it's about how you present your story. Very, very important. Um, not just a beautiful picture. Of course, you present it nice, people like it because, well, you help me get more views on my social media page because you know, I photographed something so nice that came out of the shop. Yeah, I think one question that I get a lot is, um, hawker food or local food adopting a more local uh, adopting a more modern slant and I think Melvin did it really well I saw his um, he didn't he didn't he just pre represented he didn't, there's nothing modern he didn't put truffles and all that yeah, yeah, yeah. in there but he just put it on a different it, plate that's it yeah but presenting yeah. it shaping it like the onigiri and presenting oh. it like that he also did a ramen recently right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I thought it was fantastic and I saw his duck dumplings the law up tongue it was yeah, like nice yeah. yeah yeah amazing but I feel that there are a lot of people who are trying to get the young people in in the wrong way you know they start putting all for the sake of getting the young people in yeah, yeah that's wrong really. you don't get your food right forget it you know oh I'm very savvy with with social media, oh, I get a lot of people, they ain't gonna, they ain't gonna cut it. No. Clueless foodies who like to eat what's on their feed, on their social media feed. It's okay, but the vast majority knows what they want. Mm. A lot of young Singaporeans now, I feel that they are increasingly health conscious and they are more environmentally conscious than the older folk. So do you feel that hawker culture can still remain the way it is because it's very high on the meat, high on the carb, very low on vegetables, very low on fiber. So if you look at a plate of chicken rice, right, the only vegetable on there is maybe a few sprigs of coriander, a few slices of cucumber. Okay, you say young people are very environmentally conscious. That's nonsense, right? <laughs> How many of them carry their own containers? And put that you reusable, all these things about reusable straws, and how, how many of them? Nonsense bullshit. Lah. I mean, if you want to eat healthy, you go to a hawker center. If you know your food, you can choose healthy stuff. I can go to a Techu Moy store. I want the um. Techu Moy um. Just a few grains of rice and rice milk. Not bloody healthy is rice milk. Lah. Old folks go there, they take that as medicine, you know. And then you have. Just steamed vegetable, you have a tofu, you have a simple green. Is that not healthy? But cannot. That's boomer food. <laughs> Duh. And after that, oh, oh they, 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 they use a disposable, they throw away the disposable chopsticks and plastics. Duh. Doesn't work. A lot of bullshit. I carry a tinker in my car, car every day. Yeah. Nah, every day. Yeah, I reuse my plastic bags. Three times at least. I feel like you have a lot of disdain for young people. Yep, yep. I hire a lot of them. Upon now, I, I gave up being sarcastic about them because they are who they are. It is what it is. I hire a lot of them. They, 
I would say all of them. I, I have got very good ones. Uh. Maybe out of 10 that I hire, one or two make the grade and I give them everything. Um, and I'm even happy when them take over the thing, the company. But most of the people that I hire are, they got that you owe me a living kind of attitude. When you start giving them KPI, you have to deliver this by 4 p.m. tomorrow. They deliver you a resignation letter. <laughs> really? They are soft, soft in the middle. Experience, you know, you know, you know how I found out about this. I spent about two million bucks over the last twenty years hiring and firing. It's yeah. it's like that. It's very sad. I don't know. It's an education system or or base or maybe it's the advanced disease of affluence Singapore has. Yeah, I I know that. Nobody talks about jobless. Right? Nobody talks about jobless is a choice in Singapore. Yeah, that's true. I feel like the older generation also has its own term for young Singaporeans, which is strawberry, right? The strawberry generation. I mean, you grew up, I, I, when, when, different, I mean, I grew up in an era where we have to build Singapore. Like, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and, and I saw the Lee government era and the people. Those days, you, you have a job, you're lucky, you know, and then, um, people always have to find their footing. People always work hard because they need a job. Now you don't need a job. They mm. want a meaning. And then employers are still giving you jobs, you know. <laughs> meaning, you find it on your own, you know. Yeah. Your job doesn't come with meaning. You ask for it, yeah, you go and find your own meaning. I say, I don't owe you. I just owe you this job that you say you want. You yeah. find meaning yourself. I do not owe you. You cannot thank you very much. There will probably be another employer who will come with a meaning in their job. Go, go find them. Don't find me. It's, I, I, I don't want to let you know that hey, this world didn't change just because, because there are all these inspirational... This world is still very difficult. You know? this world is, if you just watch CNN, which, which uh, strawberries don't, watch world news, which strawberries don't, they don't. Hey, this world is not getting better. It's very dangerous. You know? It's very difficult. Singapore... Is freaking fragile. You have no idea. Like that, everything is gone. So I'm very, very appreciative of where we have come today. Mm. And I will tell you, your father and mother ain't gonna help you, you know, if anything happens down here. America and China fight now, Singapore can suffer, you know. And and it's worse than COVID now. So 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 I say, um have more respect for what you believe you you are what you believe you can do and pay the price for your beliefs pay nobody talk about job hopping anymore no? uh, i see everybody's portfolio their resume three months here three months here three months you know six months one year they brag really you know yeah but given your low opinion of these so-called strawberries right the continuity hopeful, uh, hopeful. Don't, don't use the word low hopeful <laughs> The continuity of Singaporean food heritage rests on them because they are the next generation. Don't you think so? They are our future. They may not be, what I would say, truly, fully, emotionally connected with the culture and the country. But um, I think they will in time to come because uh, when you... When you um, know more about the history of this country and how fragile it is today, the more you want to own it and know it. So let's talk about the ebook that you are currently working on. 
Um, okay. what, is, what is the concept of the book and what, what do you hope to achieve with it? I mean, besides it being a food guide, I try to tell more stories about the face, the taste and the place in our little stories and reviews. So I try to go deeper, a little bit more uh, about that food and that person and that store or that place or a particular utensil that they use or a technique that they use that made it so good. Lift that appreciation level a little bit more. First time we're doing it free. Um, because in this day and age, information is free. Uh, so, um, so that's one. The other one is I can reach out to anybody in the world. Just spread here anywhere. Just spread, spread, spread. And I can update on the fly. Anytime I hear something, I tell you, hey, I took out this dye I must try hawker already because the original owners retired. And then the new chefs, no, we haven't gotten any fresh reviews about the new cooks. So they're out. They're the kind of things people appreciate. Yeah, just update on the fly. I think that sounds very good. And you said that you're going to have a wet market section in it as well? Yes, dear. Inspired by you. Oh, really? <laughs> no, no, I've always... You know, I mean, the, hey, look, um, um, not just that, I mean, your book is very, very, very nice, very nice. Um, you see, I do it because wet market stallholders are hawkers too. Uh, they are not recognized. Mm -hmm. Again, the government says, hey, come on, be aware. And, and then everybody's going to Shengshong and all that. But like, like you know, like you, you don't have a relationship with the, the supermarkets as you do with the wet market, your regular wet market guy who will tell you, they don't buy the fish, not fresh, you know? Or something like this, not as fresh. Or, or do you know wet markets, they supply to the hawkers? Mm. And they don't supply to mom and pop to cook at home? Yeah. So integral, people don't realize that. The hawkers come in the morning, they go to the wet market downstairs next to the hawker centers or yeah. nearby, buy, bring a whole bag here and they start cooking. So they are the one step before, you know, hawkers begin that day. Yeah, I think it's fantastic because, you know, with my cookbook, a cookbook can never contain all the information about wet market listings and, you know, like, like hawker centers and hawker stalls. It changes all the time, you know. The ingredients change all the time. The stalls move. So, For example, like uh, in Chinatown, everybody sells fish and all that. And these people, these two stalls side by side competitors, I've seen them for donkey years and they went one up on their fish. Yeah, towards like uh, what they... Towards the end of the day, like what fish they cannot sell, they keep the fish, they scrape the meat out, they turn into fish paste, right? And they make yong tau food. Wow, they have an array, you know, so many, like, like 20, 30 types, you know, from, from um, pork rinds to uh, bitter gourd to so many types. Pick the you can run, you can go there and pick a few hundred pieces for your day and run your yong tau food store. No? Mm. It's very good. So they value at a fish yeah you know, some people yeah like they sell meats and up they sell pork and all that and the side here they sell chassis and silver the value is you don't have to cook just buy from me value add people don't know that yeah and i saw yesterday one lady one tzuchar lady the same tzuchar lady that did the crayfish she also has live uh, flower crabs mm. and she just boils them in a controlled temperature they don't play play you know she used her rice cooker because the temperature is controlled uh. Mm. To to poach the crabs, no. Yeah. So they don't come out overcooked or undercooked. Oh, all wow. they put in, take out, same sweet sweet one. And then I saw, 
I saw a youngish girl, she go there, I think she bought it by for her whole family. She just buy the, the poached steamed crabs. That's it, wrapped in four, she bring home, no sauce, no nothing. They go back and probably add their own sambal or whatever. They just eat, Maori eat like this. The vendors can tell what to do with the dish. They always ask you, so when I was writing my cookbook, it was so funny because they'll ask me, what are you going to make with this lotus root or something? Then I'll tell them, oh, I'm actually making a cake. And they'll look at me, they were like, huh? You're making a cake with this? And you can see like, so many question marks in their head. But I really yeah, miss yeah. the markets in Singapore. I feel that you really get a sense of that human connection that you can't find anywhere else in Singapore, you know? Now my turn to ask you, so what do you want to do? With Singaporean food? With food culture in general? Or I mean, you're a Singapore food specialist. Specialist. Um... I, I think a lot of people who are preserving Singaporean food culture right now, they are of the older generation. People like yourself, like Damien De Silva, like Christopher Tan, uh, Devagi Samugam. And I feel that as a younger person, I see a lot of people from my generation and the way that they interact with food. And, it, and so I think I feel a greater sense of urgency. I see firsthand that my friends are not cooking. They don't go to the wet markets. When they do cook at home, they cook steaks, they cook roast chicken. No one cooks food within their own dialect groups anymore. So that makes me feel very scared and very sad for our food culture. I mean, what kind of Singaporean food identity are we giving to our children? You know, if a Singaporean tells you, oh, I'm Hainanese or I'm Cantonese, what does it really mean if they don't, if they, they know don't even to... speak the language? Yeah. They can't even point out Hainan in a map. <laughs> if they don't even know what dishes are in that dialect group, you know, and I felt very discouraged after 10 months of running Singapore Noodles because am I really making true progress? Am I truly progress. helping? That's why I'm saying I grew up, no man, Hokkien. You know, I can say what type of Indian food, you know, and, and it's so colourful. And today, some people, when they eat, it's nice and not nice, sweet, sour, salty, uh, bitter or you know um, spicy. Nobody talks about. Oh, I appreciate the complexity of this dish because of the heritage of the people. Mm. The the how come the hakka like that? Oh, I heard this story about how um the yong tau fu and they stuff salted meat into a tofu. It's actually a dumpling you know, because they could not make the skin and tofu could hold in salt water. Yeah. So they hold the salt water means they stuff it inside. The whole thing was a dumpling and they ate it along the way because they were nomads. It's a fantastic story. Then you realize yang tofu is because they stuff it, they think it. But they, you know, don't go deeper. How come? Who the hakas? You know? How come the Mongolian hot pot, the meat so thin? And then I, I, I read from, I, I knew this food scholar in Beijing. He told me about the Mongolian soldiers, uh, war hats that are like that. And then they come up here, um, at the thing back in the day. Uh, and you know, that's the inspiration for the hot pot. Oh, really? The funnel at the top. <laughs> and then they, the Mongolians had a military strategy that they traveled along water pathways, along rivers, to arrive at wherever they want to go. Because they will always have water with them and they always carry their livestock with them. And the 
the commanders would always make them sharpen their knives, their swords, so that when they cook, they don't have a lot of time to cook. So they would take the pot, literally light, light up the thing, light up, put water in the uh, helmet, uh, yeah. boil it, and then they take the meat, uh, uh, they slaughter the meat on the spot, and they take the swords and they slice the meat really thin. Uh, so you cook within a, within a few seconds and they eat like that hot pot. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful story. And it makes sense. Mm. No, today hot pot is mukata or Korean barbecue. So, so they are, like I said, they have to heighten the appreciation of food level to make people understand beyond sweet, sour, salty, spicy, and sour um, to go into, I really love the. I, you know, like how French would rule gaga over boiled seafood and ice, you know? Uh, how we will gaga over all these hawkers who are preparing all these dishes that came from the certain heritage and what they're doing and what they've evolved to the Catholic classic. How young are you? I'm uh, 29. Oh, baby! Baby! baby. baby. I started Makan Sutra when I was... I started Makan Sutra when I was 37. 37? Really? I didn't know that. But you know, you and I have the same goal. You just have a different language. You just have a different credit card to buy this goal, to achieve this goal. But uh, stick to it. Thank you, Sito, for taking so much time. Thank you, my dear. Come back, come back. Do stuff. Don't just do too many things online. So that wraps up my episode with KF Sito from Makan Sutra. His ebook is on his website and you can find many listings of great places to eat at in Singaporean hawker centres. He will also be updating it with stories from wet market vendors and recipes as well. Also, if you're interested in wet market culture and you're currently on Instagram, then you'll be keen to know that Tahira from Spicy Kitchen, whom I interviewed last year, and I have started a new wet market movement called Pasta Pasar. So this is a movement by the community for the community. So we are trying to leverage the power of social media to create kind of like a resource for Singapore's 83 wet markets on Instagram. So to join our movement, go to our Instagram accounts, uh, Singapore Noodles is on SGP Noodles, and click on the Instagram story highlight that says Pass the Pasar. And there you'll be able to find and save templates that we have created for you to share your wet market experience with us. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast and I'll catch you in next week's episode.